Hello, and welcome to the On an Adventure podcast, the show where I interview magic content creators to learn how magic has impacted their lives. Today, I'm joined with Phil Gallagher. Phil is a host of the Thraben U YouTube channel and a member of the Eternal Glory podcast. Phil, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Uh, I'm kind of in a transition point in my life where I'm no longer a full-time teacher. I'm focusing on content creation now. I'll still be doing a little teaching on the side, but like, so I'm full-time content creator mode over the summer, which means I actually get to check things off my to-do list instead of just like staring at them for months, <laughs> wondering when they will go away, when someone else will uh, get my car cleaned for me or something. Oh, that's that's great. You're just having all that extra free time to to do more things that more productive things in life. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like being a content creator is awesome a lot of the times, but you're also kind of burning the candle at both ends if you're doing some other full time job as well. So like today was run out, return some internet equipment go get a car wash, like do a bunch of mundane things like that, that have just been sitting on my to-do list for way too long. Mm. And it, it feels nice to remove some of those like little things that are just kind of there. They're not stressful or anything, but when there's a lot of them, it starts to add up. Right. I definitely get that for sure. Uh, how did you like balance like both having a full-time job and content creation? Um, I, I will say that I did balance that, but it's kind of the unhealthy balance where like you make it work rather than everything's just okay. Oh. Um, my life became a lot of operate with maximum efficiency at all times. So like when I would get home from work, I usually couldn't just like sit there and chill for an hour and just kind of rest until dinner. It was like, no, okay, I'm going to put together a deck list that I'm going to record after dinner. <laughs> oh, I woke up early before work. I'm not going to lay in bed scrolling through TikTok. It's going to be, no, I'm going to get up and process a video or make a thumbnail. I just kind of, anything that would have been dead time became working time so that I could still leave some time for like my girlfriend and my friends and stuff. You know, weekly D&D &D time is sacred. Can't disrupt that by working too hard. So gotta gotta work when you can and eliminate a lot of the passive dead time in your life. Yeah, that's, I think that's, like, that's very hard to do because there's a lot of passive dead time in life. And, and a lot of it is healthy. Right. Like for the first time I sat down and played vi video games for pleasure for an extended period of time this summer. Like, nice. <laughs> other than playing through Persona 5 and Elden Ring over the last couple of years, like I just haven't done any casual gaming for myself at least not to a large extent mm -hmm. and like i got to s sit down i put a lot of time into brotato i put a lot of time into diablo 4 and i actually got to just relax a little bit and that was that was wonderful nice yeah i have definitely i've like had that like free time feeling of just well i you know worked like as a teacher in a daycare uh and so now i'm like feeling like well I have a ton of more free time now. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm I'm still trying to not feel guilty when I'm not working. Mm. That, that portion hasn't really <laughs> gone away yet. Because every time I sit down to play a video game, I go, I could be making money right now. Like, I could be <sighs> recording a video. And, you know, uh, breaking out of that mindset is 
I, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. It's, it's, it's slow, but I'm getting right. through it. As long as you recognize that it's something you need to work on is like the first step in actually solving the problem. Yeah. So the thing about being a content creator is you can do as much as you want and your effort tends to come with immediate returns. Mm -hmm. So for example, this summer I went, I could release videos seven days a week. I would grow my channel so much if I did that. And I was just like, no, you idiot. Like you're, you're trying to get life balance. That's why you're like not a full-time teacher anymore. Like don't just do that immediately. And there's, there's a lot of things like that. Um, I think the people who stream actually rather than YouTube have that harder because like the longer you stream for the more traction you get, the more viewers you have for mm -hmm. any one stream and like they, they can fall into this pattern where it's like, oh, if I don't stream tonight, I'm going to let my fans down or I, I should be live for this long. Uh, it, it is a weird, slightly unhealthy emotional state that you can get into. Right. Whereas like YouTube, the work is kind of done beforehand, like in advance. Yeah. And I, I've been on a set release schedule of five videos a week for a long time. And I intend on just kind of sticking with that, at, at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, having work-life balance is always a thing many people struggle with. And like it's hard it's just hard well, i i th i think it's hard enough with a 40 hour a week job mm -hmm. because like a lot of times like you know you're you're scheduled for 40 hours a week or you're salaried for 40 hours a week but then there's you know commute time there's oh hey before you go can we chat real quick mm -hmm. And when you start throwing in your hobbies, your kids, if you have them, whatever, the amount of truly free time that you have is surprisingly small. And for right. many of us, you know, that's our Magic the Gathering time or our video game time or whatever. Yeah. I saw like a, a thing that was like recently, it was like, like divide, like how much time you spend like working, uh, being at home and like sleeping and it's like, you know, normal people, like it's supposed to be like eight hours of each, but then like, okay, how long does it take to commute to work? Like it takes like, you know, 10, 20 minutes. Okay. Now how much time do you spend just like scrolling on TikTok or Twitter? Okay. That's like some amount of time. And then you realize like you've gone from eight hours of supposed free time to down to like five hours. Yeah. I'm, my my conceptual plan starting with the school year is I'll I'll be done with my teaching stuff at one thirty. Mm -hmm. I'll be home by, you know, one forty, one forty-five. My plan for most days is to record a league when I get home. Uh for those of you who are commander folks, maybe um a league is five rounds of best of three. Um, which will take two or three hours. And I hope to mostly have my content stuff done before dinner so that I can leave real blocks of times in the evening. And, you know, sometimes while I do stuff in the evening, absolutely, you know, whether it's commander games with friends or podcasts or whatever, I do, a, I do a lot of stuff, but I'm hoping most of my workflow to be done by the early evening moving forward. Nice. That's, I guess it's like a smart way to do it. Cause then you also don't end up spending, you know, like staying up till midnight working on a video or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
I, I do some tutoring sessions. I do as many guest appearances on streams as I can manage without overly taxing my time. And it's very easy to just go, I don't have anything on the calendar that day. I can put another thing on it, but there's, there's definitely a breaking point somewhere. Right. I have, uh, I have like had, when I like initially started the show, I was like, okay, I just want to like record like 24 seven. Like I just want to record every single day. And then, uh, I, I realized I was like, okay, let's make like an off day. I don't care what the off day, just one off day in the week where I don't do anything related to the show. I just do whatever I want. And that has definitely helped me not get burnt out on doing the show. Yeah. Um, burnout is a very real thing. If, uh, do we, do we, do we want to go there? Do we want to talk about that? Sure. We can, we can do that. So I, I think just kind of regular people in your life, you've probably experienced burnout with your job. Um, it's really weird when it's burnout with content creation because like it's a thing you're doing because you love it for an audience that also loves it so mm -hmm. it would feel weird that you would get burnt out doing that but it is also sort of a large looming obligation that you have every day and when everything is like fine and normal like i love recording but there were some times where I was stressed or other things that was going on in my life where it's just like, oh man, I have to record a video tonight. I have to get it processed so that it could go up tomorrow. And towards the end of this, the school year this year, when everything was just going wrong in my regular work life, like my, my regular viewers were like, Phil, you good? Like, you don't seem happy recording these. And I'm like, I am about to be good, but no, I'm not, I'm not the best right now. And then the summer hit and, like my attitude immediately changed and they were like, oh, okay, yeah, you were very clearly burnt out and stressed. Yeah. That's, that's tough. How do you, how have you found to deal with burnout? So, uh, let's, let's get, let's get touchy feely for a minute. Every, every once in a while I get these really nice personalized messages. Um, recently, Someone who doesn't even watch my channel reached out to me and was mm -hmm. like, hey, my, my husband watches your channel every day. I don't really understand what exactly you're doing, but I've been kind of tangentially around magic people for all my life. And you're just so much like happier and kinder and you focus on education. And I just really appreciate your attitude and the little things you do to make the community better. So thanks. And maybe once a month I get a message kind of something of that nature just a truly heartfelt like hey thanks you're an important part of my life you know I mm -hmm. fall asleep watching your videos my lunch break every day is looking forward to what silly thing you're recording with and when I feel really burnt out a lot of times I reflect on like the little difference that I'm making in somebody's life and that keeps the the fire going nice that's that's always so sweet to get those messages just like once you know like what i do actually matters and actually like has a positive impact on someone's life yeah i i like very vividly remember one of the first times it happened to me um it was it was when i was kind of generally speaking a a nobody in terms of the grand scheme of the content creation sphere you know i was streaming to maybe somewhere between 20 and 50 people it was it was small at the time Someone kind of came up to me and was like, hey, I, I really appreciate what you're you're doing. You know, I played an X, Y, and Z event using your list. I ended up winning that. 
you know, here's kind of what you meant to me. And it was just like, oh shit, like what I'm doing actually does matter to some people. Like mm -hmm. I am, you know, bringing them joy or I'm teaching them things. It's not just me booting up and streaming for a couple hours and making less than minimum wage on Twitch. Uh, it, 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 is, it is getting somewhere. Yeah. How did you find like streaming on Twitch compared to uh, doing YouTube videos? So um, let, let's talk about this on two, two fronts. Let's talk mm -hmm. about this in terms of experience and in terms of like monetary compensation. Yeah. In terms of experience, Twitch is awful as a finished product. Like if you go and watch someone's Twitch VOD, it, it's it's borderline unwatchable like it's it's so slow there's conversations that you can hardly follow uh it, it's a lot of disjointed stuff the play isn't as good because people are highly distracted because like they're focusing on bantering mm -hmm. but if you're there live it is a fun experience because it's more like hanging out with someone so when you're streaming on twitch it's not really about the game like the game is part of it, but the, the the banter, the hanging out, the vibes matter a lot more. Whereas with YouTube, it's about the the polished product. It's about that editing, that speed, that kind of density of information. So the two are wildly different. And it took me a long time to understand that. When I first started my YouTube channel, I just dumped Twitch VODs onto there. And like, that was that. No editing, no thumbnail, no tags, no metadata. And like old me looks at that and it's just like, oh man, what was I doing? That was, that was dumb. I shouldn't have done that. Um, but in terms of like monetary compensation, I made below minimum wage streaming on Twitch, even when I was kind of at my peak and I was like at the level where I applied for the partner program multiple times while meeting all the requirements multiple times. And they were like, get a little bigger get a little bigger and I was like okay fine I'll, I'll just wait on this and when I switched to YouTube and I started taking YouTube seriously the financial returns came very very quickly and in a couple of videos I would outpace what I made on Twitch in a month like just instantly mm. just because of the built-in ad revenue so once I saw the, the light of YouTube I, I never looked back. Yeah. I I definitely appreciate that point of like Twitch is unpolished because I like and it makes me appreciate you how much editing goes into YouTube videos. Cause like magic is not a fun game to watch when it is not like crisply edited or or like you're just like talking with someone. Like yeah, I why do you, why do you think Arena has so many like crazy animations and stuff? It's because the game is is slow. There's a lot of thinking time. There's a lot of dead time. Um, generally speaking, if it takes me three hours to record a Legacy League, again, that's five rounds, the finished product will be about one hour long when I edit it down on YouTube. And that's including yeah. like a deck tech and a conclusion as well. So really, there's so much dead time on Twitch, which is why you have time for that banter, that conversation. But if you're only there for the magic, like Twitch is not a good place to watch. No. <laughs> no, it's not. And like even like, I don't know, commander games, like commander streams, which are like 
there's definitely less dead time because you know four players more actions are being taken but like there's still like some amount of dead time and i still like i watch commander streams to hang out with the four people playing rather than the watching a game of magic yeah um there's a really wide range of commander content and some of them like are there for the magic. Uh, so something like playing with power where mm -hmm. they edit a CEDH game down to 10 minutes or less, you know, you can do these like highly pod polished. Here is the magic, but that doesn't work on a live stream on Twitch. So who do you always see in these Twitch streams? Like, who are the people who are just kind of passed around from stream to stream? They're the people with, like, cool personalities. They're the people who, like, have good vibes, who are, you know, generally fun and interesting people to be around. Yeah. And yeah, I've, like, because I do, uh, like, I write scripts for Playing With Power, and part of that is they, they send me, like, the the whole VOD of the the game and then also like a text log of like the actions that happened. And then, yeah, you know, I turn it into a script and I just watched that game. And I'm like, oh my God, there is so much dead time. <laughs> There's just so much dead air. I hate it. This is awful. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to the inside look at content creation, folks. Yep. <laughs> we, we, we do our best to make it entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how did you like get into content creation? So originally, I guess I was probably known as a, a legacy grinder on things like the, the SCG circuit. Um, I kind of became famous for working with one deck in particular, uh, which was called Death and Taxes. For those of you not familiar with legacy, it's sort of a mono white control deck using a whole bunch of hate bears. Your things like Thalia, Guardian of Thraben. Uh, it's a lot of creatures like that, coupled with a little bit of evasion, a little bit of uh, equipment, and the current builds uh, have Yorian as well as a companion. And I made a website where I wrote a bunch of articles and strategies specifically on that one deck. Uh, I was playing in IQs, Invitational Qualifiers, every weekend, which were kind of uh, some of the Star City smaller events, you know, often 20 to 100 people and got more top eights than I could count playing death, mostly Death and Taxes in those. And over time, I transitioned from written content into video content when I picked up Twitch. And then it transitioned into YouTube content after that. And at this point, kind of my gimmick is that I play anything in Legacy. So my viewers pay and submit deck lists for me to play on the channel. So legitimately, I have played just about every single deck in Legacy on camera, oftentimes learning the decks on the fly while trying to teach my audience about them and mostly play well. Nice. That's yeah, that's really cool. What um what drew you to death and taxes like specifically as an archetype? What did I do to death and taxes specifically? Or what 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 drew you to the deck? Oh what drew me to it. Okay. Yeah. So um I started playing Legacy when I was a I mean, maybe I shouldn't say poor grad student, but relative to the comfy life that I live now, I didn't really have a, a budget to speak of. Mm -hmm. and death and taxes was a highly accessible legacy deck with like no reserve list cards 
and once you had a couple of expensive lands uh, once you had like wasteland or schadenport and caracas most of the cards in the rest of the deck were ten dollars or less so it was super easy to trade for um, i had looked at death and taxes and elves as kind of budget decks at the time and i fell in love with death and taxes i got super involved with uh, some online forums uh, any boomers out there listening might remember like the source and mtg salvation i got super involved on there and i just really enjoyed the strategic tight gameplay that the deck offered it like honestly wasn't that good of a deck unless you played out of your mind and you just kind of knew all of the ins and outs of not only your deck but your opponent's deck as well but if you did have that knowledge, the, the deck was often one of the better decks in the format. And as kind of a, an intellectual guy who studied up and did, did kind of the legwork necessary to make that deck work, uh, it appealed a lot to me and scratched a really good strategic itch. Nice. My cat tries to pretend to leave, but decides, nah, she's good. <laughs> yeah, that's... That's interesting. I, I've definitely seen the Death and Taxes like being recommended as like a budget deck, but I've also at the same time seen it's a really hard deck though. Like Yeah, my, my podcast, the Eternal Glory podcast, did an episode specifically talking about getting into legacy for newer players. Because a lot of the CEDH people are crossing over into legacy and vice versa right now. And like, while Death and Taxes is one of the better budget decks in the format, it also requires just such a huge knowledge base of the format that it's kind of this new player trap. Where mm -hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, we're going to hand you this deck that is exceptionally hard to pilot. Like, good luck. Go beat that Grizzlebrand, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Hope you draw rest in peace or surgical. <laughs> yeah, I kind of felt that my, fir my first time playing Legacy uh, was... Uh, in 2017, it's like Deathrite Shaman Pro Era, and uh, I was just like in the store because my store did Monday Night Legacy, and they were like they were needed a an eighth person, and I was just like, if you give me a deck, sure I'll play, uh, and I got the choice between uh, Red Prison uh, or uh, Check Pile, which uh, is like a, a four color like control deck with like Brainstorms, Ponders, Leovolts, and non-white good cards basically and um they were like i would recommend you play moon stompy by the way like just putting that out there i recommend you play moon stompy this is a much easier deck to play i was like but i want the brainstorm ponder deck that deck looks fun yeah so <laughs> there, there is something to like learning the format by playing like the brainstorm ponder experience like the the ability to cast a Brainstorm, draw three cards, put two back, and then fetch away the bad cards you don't want is one of the fundamental play patterns of Legacy. But um, I, I am one of the Moonstompy experts in Legacy. I've, I've cast more Chalice of the Voids than most humans on this planet. And as an expert of that deck, that deck gets my seal of approval as being new player friendly. There is a really high skill ceiling on the deck still, but... As long as you understand that Ancient Tomb taps for two mana, you can start casting your spells and play Legacy at a respectable level pretty quickly. Yeah, I feel like with decks like that, it's like the the difficulty the the difficulty of it is like is concentrated in like the first 
two turns so that like when you make mistakes it's a lot more punishing but you're gonna make fewer mistakes i guess if that makes sense yeah um i don't remember if i've actually written an article on this or whether or not i've just talked about it um i call it hyper compression mm -hmm. so when you're playing a deck that plays its games very quickly and is expecting to effectively end the game in let's say turn three or before and that's slow um you your mulligan decisions your deck building decisions and how you sequence your first two turns end up being the pivotal decisions and you often win or lose your game based on like oh this city of traders versus this ancient tomb even though they both tap for two mana they actually have widely different implications for the rest of the game or okay is this a matchup where i'm supposed to play my chalice of the void on one to stop my opponent's stuff or is this a matchup where i'm supposed to just play a creature on turn one and start trying to kill my opponent your decisions get really rammed into a couple of turns and to an outsider it looks like oh your opponent didn't have any decisions and it's like well I did, though. I had a lot of decisions. They just happened quickly, and you don't see a lot of them. Right. I've, I've gotten that same feeling in Modern. I play Living End, and there are a lot of times where, like, you just ha you have, like, one of two cyclers, and, like, you're like, alright, they're just the same cycler. They both cycle for blue. Like, what, what does it matter whether I cycled the 4-4 flyer or the 5-5 X-proof? And then you end up, like, one damage short, because you cycled the flyer, and then they cast Supreme Verdict and you cry. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of, Living End uh, looks like it got a lot of fun new toys with the uh, oh. land cycler cycle from Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle-Earth. Oh yeah, I am so, so stoked about it. I talked about this in an uh, earlier episode I recorded a few weeks ago. Or not a few weeks ago, like a few days ago. Um, and we just like went on a deep dive of playing this, these cyclers and it's... I am so stoked. <laughs> like, just... Oh. That that set, just as a whole, has been such a hit, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It occup occupies that same conceptual space as something like Modern Horizons or Modern Horizons 2. And I think a lot of people look back on those sets with, like, some amount of hatred or malice because they they warped so, so many formats, like forever changed what those formats looked like with things like the elementals taking over modern and various cards uh having huge impact in legacy as well and needing to be banned but when i look at this set i see the commander players are happy because there's an amazing density of legends as well as what i consider to be new commander staples mm -hmm. and the constructed players get a few new treats like the one ring orcish bowmasters that are really empowering in formats yeah and then just like everyone who's like a fan of lord of the rings has been like the f they hit it like they they hit this set yeah i was i was definitely one of those like i wasn't a full-on lord of the rings nerd but like i watched all the movies i read all the the books i was really into like medieval combat when i was in high school and like seeing a lot of things that i read slash watched in like late middle school early high school kind of comeback was uh was a treat for me yeah i was not like a big lord of the rings fan i read the hobbit and then i watched the three movies uh and i read fellowship of the ring but i was like i didn't like the vibe of fellowship compared to hobbit so i just didn't read the other two uh and then 
Cell's like, I don't really know much about this set, but everyone I see is just gushing about, like, these random characters. I have no idea who they are. And that's cool. Yeah, uh, I I recognize most of the names, but every once in a while I'm just like, is is this a real person from the books or is this a made-up character for the set? Surely it's real, right? Surely, yeah. I don't know. They, those, I mean, those series definitely have, like, crazy deep characters, like side characters that, like, they popped up sometime, probably. Yeah. Um, I guess one thing that's surprised me about the set is I kind of did a first glance through and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get a handful of these cards. And as I started encountering more of these, I'm like, oh, I kind of want one of those for this EDH deck, or I'm going to try this in Legacy. And a lot of the commons and uncommons ended up being really good in Pauper, too. Um, mm. I don't know if you follow that format, but the mono red deck that's like tier one or maybe tier zero in that format got two new cards from this set. And the, the elf bred Lemboss is uh, doing work in that format as well. Yeah. I don't really play Pauper. That's like not a format I have put much time. Like, I think I, pl I played it right before the last banning happened which is i think like disciple of the vault atog Pro prophetic prism that ban before that banning uh i played a bit um i haven't really played since then uh popper and i are on on rocky relationship terms right now <laughs> we, we took a break from each other for a little while it wasn't me it was them um <laughs> and I, I i just came back and played my first league in I don't know, five or six months, and I I enjoyed it, but the 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 deck is very or the format is very centralized around a handful of decks, and it's pretty brutal to try to play lower power brews in Popper. Mm. Like Popper is surprisingly high power level, despite the fact that it's just commons and uncommons. Like the decks yeah. are very good. Oh yeah, I I used to play a lot more Popper. I used to play like Tron when it was like f like fully busted uh and yeah tron does some gross things in popper <laughs> yeah i i used to play uh like cloud post fog deck way way back in oh, the day cloud post is legal wow yeah i i am an old man <laughs> um i i used to really love mono black control with like crypt rats and chittering rats and a lot of things like that back when you would unearth auger of skulls which Ooh. is a sorcery speed like you can sa sack this creature at sorcery speed to make your opponent discard two cards so then you would like unearth it to bring it back and make them do it again love love those toxic play patterns <laughs> thank goodness they're not prevalent in magic anymore <laughs> unban him to turok and pauper you cowards no, seriously, don't do it. Like as much That's, as I would enjoy that, it's it's not a fun card to play uh -uh. against in a lower power level <laughs> format. I uh, I once showed up to a local game store just to hang out, and they were like, "Hey, we're having a popper tournament tonight. Do you want to play?" And I'm like, oh, "I don't have a deck." It's like, "Oh, do you want to borrow mono black?" Yes, I, I won that tournament. Just yeah, yeah. Not not fair. They let me play sinkhole as well in that deck. <laughs> Uh, yeah because that was uh was technically a common as well yeah sure. so like 
I felt like I was playing with the power nine. <laughs> like people were playing bounce lands and I was just like sinkhole. Oh god. Yeah, it, it was it was not okay. I sinkhole your bounce land. Jeez. Uh, that's uh that's disgusting. It it was. It was very one-sided fun. And uh Alex Ullman and the other people on the popper format panel have talked about unbanning both those cards and they were like yeah we don't really know if this is a good idea like they might be okay on power level but like they're, they're, they're sure so not fun. not fun yeah even in legacy him is pretty miserable when it does the thing oh yeah like sometimes you go like dark ritual thought sees you and him you all on turn one <laughs> and it's just like you're not playing magic anymore yep you're just like all right cool they took my best spell and they they just stripped two of my lands cool i'm not i'm not doing anything like great I know a while back you got into CDH. Uh, I did. How has that, that been going? Um, so I I have a for realsies event. Um, let's see, it's still June. At the end of next month, then at the end of mm -hmm. July, I will be going to the cookout in Atlanta. And that will be my first proper CEDH tournament where there's something real on the line. And uh, I'm in deck selection mode. I've been playing Winota for... I don't know, the last year and a half or something like that. And I just don't know that Winota has the tournament chops that I want. Mm -hmm. um, for, for those of you not familiar with my background, like despite the fact that I play a shit ton of meme decks on my channel, like at my heart, I am a spiky, spiky spike. Like I am a tournament grinder. So if I am going to show up to an event, I am going to try to win that event. I'm not going to play something if I don't think it has a real chance at winning the tournament. And despite the fact that I love Winota and my personal results are very good with it, I think a lot of times I'm winning games because I am the best Magic player in the pod and I'm the person with the most tournament experience. Mm -hmm. But when everyone at the event is going to be there for reals for, to you know play with serious tuned decks, I don't know that I will have that same degree of edge. So I think I need my deck power to go up. So I, I might be just defaulting to something like Blue Farm or one of the other more traditional deck choices. Right. That's like always hard is like playing the deck that you know versus the deck like maybe it's a little bit better, but might not be better for you specifically. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what Winota is to me right now. Like my win rate with Winota is absurd in just casual CEDH pickup games. Mm -hmm. I probably win 50% or more of my matches. And Winota is not a deck that should win at that rate. It's because like people don't respect my deck enough or they misplay against it or I just wiggle myself into the right spot or table talk well. But when I'm sitting down against, you know, the Bryant Cooks and the Brian Kovals of the world and, you know, other CEDH grinders, like they're not going to buy into my bullshit. Like, I'm not going to get away with the stuff that I'm getting away with in pickup <laughs> games. Absolutely not. Like, Brian has consistently said, like, the number of acceptable Winota triggers is zero. Like, don't let them even get one. And when more than one person in a pod is of that same mindset, like, my deck can't win. Right. Yeah, that's that deck. I played, uh, I, I've been playing CH for a very long time, like probably like six years at this point. Yeah, since since like 2017. And I remember when Winota first burst on the scene and it was just like, 
Oh, I have to put sword supplies in my deck? I don't want to do this. Like, what? what is this? So we just weren't playing swords at that point. Because it's like, what, like, what are you going to hit? And turns out Winona is a good hit. Yeah. Um, I'm also very afraid of Orcish Bowmasters. Like, mm. I'm aware that it is one card in a very diverse card pool. But it's also just a card that my deck isn't going to beat. Because... Player A can conspire with person B. Person B casts a card draw spell, and then I just oh. lose three of my creatures on board to Orcish Bowmasters just very easily. Yeah. And, like, I think I'm just fully off the deck. Which is sad. I've, I've put in a lot of work on it, but I mm -hmm. I think this is one of those times where I, I have to be the big boy and realize, like, I I can't expect this deck to carry me in tournament results especially given how telegraphed winota play is mm -hmm. like you know whether or not the winota is about to kill you whereas right. when a person sitting on a handful of blue cards you don't you don't know what's going on there yeah and like even though orcish orcish bowmaster is like a one of in maybe one or two other people's decks it's a card that people would like pretty aggressively tutor for against winota <laughs> Yeah, um, what, what what will probably be my best video of all time, drop, at least in the short term, dropped on my channel yesterday. And it was my first Legacy League with Orcish Bowmasters, where like I immediately played multiple Orcish Bowmaster mirrors. And it was like Bowmasters on Bowmasters. Somebody casts a Brainstorm, flashes in a Bowmasters in response. There's a billion orcs on the board now. Or not a billion orcs, one very large, thick yeah. orc instead. Um, but yeah, that card is format changing. I love how like we were like the the best answer to an Orcish Bowmaster is your own Orcish Bowmaster. You're not wrong, but let me tell you, I'm not building very many more legacy decks that have X one creatures in it. Uh, oh, moving yeah. forward, it's uh, it's tough. Um, yeah, that's. I think that's something that like. Legacy have experienced that similar to like what modern experience with Fury, where it's just like you're putting a ton of X one creatures in your deck, kind of sucks. Yeah, um, Legacy a while back had this era with Renin Six. So for those of you not familiar with it, it's red green planeswalker that has a minus one that allows you to just ping something, and Legacy is full of small X one creatures. And I was a death and taxes guy. And at the time, I just quit playing that deck. Just like it killed my Thalias, my Flicker Whiffs, my Mother of Runes. Everything that I knew and loved was just dying to that card. And that was also when Oko happened. So yeah. a lot of things got turned into Elks as well. And it was it was a bad time to play creature decks. Yep. Yeah, Ryan Six and Oko, pretty good versus creature decks traditionally yeah there was there was kind of a dark uh maybe year or year and a half between like those cards and arkham's astrolabe and uro where format got really powerful really fast mm -hmm. yeah that's that's like around when i got back into legacy uh in, in 2020 I, I came back to legacy to loris delver i was just like oh cool good to see delver still broken that's <laughs> The more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Now the weird thing is a lot of the Delver decks don't even play Delver anymore. Right. Yeah. 
Just Please don't like, call them Delver decks because that's what they are. Because that's what they've been for the past ten years. <laughs> yeah, that's that's another thing. Is legacy deck names are just so silly. Like, <laughs> yes, I have campaigned very heavily against them, um, mm -hmm. and not just in that format. In every format, yeah. Um, so Blue Farm in CEDH is a great example of this, where Blue Farm means absolutely nothing to anyone until they are highly enfranchised in the format. And like you'll notice earlier when I started talking about death and taxes, I immediately explained what it was. Mm -hmm. uh, I am such a big believer in deck names being descriptive so that they are clear to like newbies in a format. It just makes your format so more so much more accessible. If you're just like, oh, this is Timnacrom Control. Okay, I get what that is, as long right. as I know what those cards are. Whereas when, I'll use some legacy deck names, for example. When I say something like Cheerios or Apple Jacks, you might not even know that I am <laughs> talking about a legacy deck. And no, that, those are two distinct legacy decks. Yes. <laughs> like Legacy has had it has had it rough in that regard. I'm, I'm yeah. trying to save CEDH before it's too late. I also hate the name Blue Farm because, like, Farm was Farm is like a storied history. I actually remember like talking to the uh, the, the creative like the first Farm deck, uh, Leptis. Um, and he was like he just like talked about the origin, of it. and it's like supposed to be this like turbo ad nauseum deck that like plays like creatures to like get card advantage, and like Blue Farms. Like if like if you know that that's like what farm decks are is like tur like you just like speed to an ad nauseum, and you try to play blue farm like that, you're not gonna have a good time. <laughs> deck does not turbo or ad nauseum on turn two like like other farm decks would, and then like just, and then like we also don't call like rog silas farm you know that's like the turboiest ad nauseum deck that like <laughs> is. Yeah. The, the Rog Silas deck is uh, scary. Um, my podcast co-host, Bryant Cook, has put in a lot of work to improving that archetype, and uh, it goes fast. It goes real fast. It, it sure does. I, I do like that deck. That deck's a fun deck to play. How actually did you get started with the podcast? Uh, so the Eternal Glory podcast originally had different hosts. Mm -hmm. Bryant Cook was one of the original hosts uh, alongside, I believe it was Anurag Das and Wilson Hunter. Okay. And both of them fell off the podcast and the podcast went defunct for, I don't know, maybe six months or a year or something like that. And then Bryant tweeted like, kind of miss podcasting. I should go back to that. And I fired back like, hey, if you're serious about this, like, let's talk, let's make a podcast. Mm -hmm. And so we found Brian to be our third and we started up uh, the podcast again uh, with a strong competitive legacy focus. And the podcast has still centered around legacy, but we've branched out a little bit. And occasionally there's a CEDH or a modern or a popper episode or something like that. Uh, maybe if something like Eternal Weekend is coming up, we'll, we'll talk about vintage. Mm -hmm. But um, podcast has been fun. As it grew, we had to kind of like monetize it to make sure it was worth our time. Right. And we divided the podcast into two parts. There's roughly a half an hour long like 
banter life updates section for the people who want to know how we're doing as humans that's on our patreon side and then like the condensed strategy talk with minimal nonsense is sort of the public free side because mm-hmm. we did you or is that yeah go on Okay, because we we got complaints from some folks who were like, yeah, remove all the banter. I just want the information. And then there were a bunch of people who were like, no, don't do that. Like, we we come for the banter. Like, I want to know how you are as a human. I want to know what's going on in your life. So that was kind of our balance of the the Twitch versus the YouTube, so to speak, uh, incorporating Mm -hmm. our uh, stuff from earlier. Yeah, I know my my favorite episode of that, or one of my favorite episodes of that show is the which is a very old episode at this point, like a, probably two years old, is the is your episode on sideboarding. Uh, and that episode has f- like f- over 40 minutes of banter. Just to- <laughs> <laughs> and it's just the best. It's such, like, I, like, regularly listen to an episode, like, primarily for, like, the show. She's like, let me, like, refresh on how to sideboard. And then I just, like, listen to that. And I'm like, no, I still want to listen to the banter. This is just funny. Yeah, um, hosting a podcast is this weird thing because you get to decide the the texture of the show, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's it's down to business, and other times it's just this loose ephemeral thing where like the episode title is one thing, and then we spend half an hour talking about grilling or something like that. Uh, we we've tightened up the cast a bit, but. There were some of the earlier episodes where we were just restarting it. There's there's some very long digressions on life that are sometimes funny. And we we had some heated arguments that had nothing to do with magic. Yeah, yes. The good old, the good old pizza arguments. Um, yeah. Did, so did you and Bryant uh, know each other uh, when you, like, reached out to him to, to pitch the idea? Or were you, like vaguely friends or or what was that like it's it's kind of one of those like we had a professional relationship but Mm -hmm. like weren't friends or anything so his his website for the legacy storm deck tes the epic storm was what inspired my own website on death and taxes so like while i wasn't a big storm player or anything i respected the work he did and modeled um, a lot of my early work alongside what he did Mm-hmm. So like we we knew each other, you know, we had seen each other at events. We weren't good friends or anything, but we had worked together on some like mutual legacy projects and stuff. And now now we are we are good friends. Right. And uh for the first time our podcast podcast crew is going to be all in the same place at the same time for uh the cookout in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just hasn't happened because we restarted the podcast. Uh I don't know. R- roughly around covid time i think we we started mm. prior to the pandemic but that kind of shut down a lot of in-person tournaments and killed multiple uh like tournament organizers or at least their established tournament series so it is, right. it is nice to have an event that we all will be competing at yeah that's that's really cool uh I actually i did not know that that part like yeah i've actually been in an event together since the show no, two of the three of us have been in the same place at multiple times, but like Brian and Brian and I ended up at multiple uh, command fests or magic cons together. Bryant and Brian ended up at a tournament together, but 
yeah, this is the the first time the triumvirate reunites. Nice. I assume like Brian uh, was also like kind of in that like professionally like relationship, but not like close friend when you got him on. Yeah, I hardly knew Brian. Hmm. Um, I think I had talked to him once. He won. I, I think it was an SCG Invitational with Modern Death and Taxes. And I was kind of the legacy Death and Taxes guy at the time. Right. So I reached out to him and I was like, hey, I saw you won this. Like, is this deck good? Like, can I play this deck in this format? And he basically said, oh, God, no. This was a deck <laughs> for one tournament. Please don't go and play that deck. And like, other than seeing him at events we were mutually attending, I don't know that I ever talked to him again until the mm. podcast started up. Okay. But now, like, when I go to a Magic Con, like, he is one of my dinner buddies. Like, I will be right. rooming with him at Magic Con Vegas. I'll be rooming with him in Atlanta. Like, we are we are close now. Nice. Yeah. Uh, also, like, the thing I really like about the show is you all three, like, ha are different deck specialists. Like, you are, like, the, like, Chalice, Thalia player. Brian is the, like, Brainstorm Ponder you know, Source Plushers, Uro guy, and, and Bryant is the, the Storm combo guy. And, like, it always makes, like, discussions, like, interesting because you just have those different perspectives that cover a vast majority of legacy decks. Yeah, I, th I think it's very easy to get caught in an echo chamber if you're always hanging around with people of the same sort of category as you are, whatever that means. So, you know... When I first started playing CEDH, the first deck that I picked up was Marwyn, uh, which is mono green elf adjacent combo. Mm -hmm. And I hopped on the Discord server and I asked a bunch of questions, gave a bunch of opinions, was kind of told like, hey, you're, you're wrong about a lot of these things. No, this doesn't need to change. And like I sat down, I did math, like I busted out a hypergeometric calculator to run some numbers on chances to hit things. I came back, I played a bunch of games, came back to the community, and then I was like, okay, I was right about X, Y, Z. I don't think this deck is competitive. And then immediately after like, I came in with more reps, people were like, yeah, no, you're, yeah, you're probably right. I'm like, why didn't you tell me this the first time then? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, you, you, you all were kind of caught up talking about your deck in your own community, and then someone from an outside came at a critical eye, poked a bunch of holes in what was there, and while they were initially resistant, when I came back, you know, a few months later at, with more reps, they were like, no, no, no okay, yeah, we kind of agree with what you're saying. And yeah. shortly thereafter, Marwin did end up being removed from the CEDH, uh, like, competitive deck database as just, like, yeah. not a viable option anymore. Yeah, CEDH, I've definitely experienced that because it's, like, so small and tight-knit. It's just, and then, like, it's, like, fragmented into each Discord server that's, you know, even smaller and more fragmented, the, like, you definitely get that kind of echo chamber uh, type vibe at, in, in some decks. And, like, it just takes, like, an outsider perspective to just, like, completely revolutionize a deck. Yeah. Um, one thing that I want to say here, though, is when you are viewing something as an outsider, it's important to have a good dose of healthy skepticism about what's there, while also respecting established knowledge. Like, mm -hmm. please ask critical questions and try to learn things for yourself. But if you walk in and you immediately want to start changing 20 cards in an established CEDH deck, like, oh, whoa, like, maybe... Blow the brakes. 
maybe learn why things are there first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know you and the podcast have talked about that a lot. The first people ask about Death Nexus, why is Flicker Wisp in the deck? This card doesn't do anything. Yeah, that is that is exactly the, the sort of thing I, I had in mind. So um, that card, I don't want to exaggerate, but that card was basically why I made a website. Like, I had got that exact question. Like, why is Flicker Wisp in Death and Taxes? This card is bad. It doesn't do anything. I'd gotten that so many times and answered that so many times on the forum. And I kind of got pissed and I was just like, okay, I just need to make something that I can link people to so I can stop answering this effing question two times a week. And that ended up uh, in me writing a whole bunch of different strategy articles for, for the deck. Yeah. I... And- it's always like the most innocuous cards that look not great, but are like secretly the best card, or like they're the the like the thing that greases the wheels. But like they just look like why are you pl- this doesn't do anything. Yeah, I I think Fable of the Mirror Breaker might be a great example of this across multiple different formats. Mm-hmm. Where like you look at the card and go, that card's pretty good, and then you realize after you've played it more like oh, this treasure is holding together my crappy mana base, or this looting is giving me card selection in a deck that normally doesn't really have access to card selection, and it's quietly something that holds the deck together rather than just being a reasonable magic card. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, Fable's a a great example of that. Like, reading the card, it looks like, yeah, looks pretty good, but not, like, insanely strong, and then you just play with it. And you kind of get it. It's like, oh, this card's really good. Yeah, I think a lot of people right now are having similar experiences with the one ring. Where mm. They looked at that and went, that's kind of neat. That'll see some play. And then they started playing it and it was like, oh, you mean I don't lose the life until my next upkeep? So I can just yeah. play eight Voltaic keys in my deck and untap that thing repeatedly and draw increasingly large numbers of cards? So, uh... I, I think people are finding that, like, oh, this looked okay, and then, oh, this is much better than it looked in practice. Right. And, like, yeah, it's... I know people, like, had that in Modern with Ledger Shredder, for example. It's like, yep, this, this looks, you know, decent. And then, like, you ask, wait, it triggers all my opponent's casting spells, too? Wait a minute. This yeah, thing, I, I definitely just... learned that live. I just conceptually in my head went, oh, this triggers on their turn. It's like, uh-oh, no, this... No. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so how did you... Or I guess, like, how have you found, like, writing articles um, for uh, Magic? How has that, like, evolved over time? So when I first started, my articles were basically for a target audience of, like, 20 D&T bros like who were kind of like hanging out in my discord server or who were just like regulars of the the source or MTG salvation or whatever like the I was writing those for a very small target audience mm-hmm. and now when I write articles you know be it something for my patreon or something that I'm paid to write for someone I am trying to make my articles have a much larger target audience um let me find the one that i wrote recently because i did a 
yeah, my last article I wrote was for playedh.com called mm-hmm. Did You Build Your Casual Commander Deck Wrong? And it, uh, it has a, a great title and it kind of talks about some deck building theory and how you should be building your deck with gameplay experience in mind. Uh, and it was a very, very popular article, but that's that's written for the world. That's not written for a small group of people anymore. And that's the direction that I want to take my article writing now. I want it mm-hmm. to be less hyper-focused strategy that applies to a handful of top-tier competitive tourney grinders to, hey, I would like to pass on my knowledge to the general public instead. Yeah. That, that makes sense, because, like, yeah, the old articles have to read, like, D&T primers, uh, which is, like, like the purpose of writing those is, you know, to inform players about the deck and to, to do that, but when, you know, players are not as interested in the deck, they're not going to read the deck, or read the article. Yeah, um, looking at one of my old articles, it's just called Flicker Wisp and You, and it's just, like, 30 <laughs> different things that you can do with a Flicker Wisp. <laughs> And it's just like, okay, I don't, I don't think I need to write things that, that specialized anymore. Yeah. Like we can, I have acquired a a lot of knowledge over my years and years of playing magic. And now I am getting better at educating people on elements of the game beyond just micro level strategy. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like one thing I've always found insightful about like your content and the podcast in general is a lot of like, like you'll be like talking about like a concept and you'll use like legacy examples to like, like put that concept in practice. But like the concept still applies even if you're playing modern or pop or whatever. I I don't think my friend will mind me sharing this anecdote with his name attached. Um, Alex Ullman uh, is a good friend of mine, uh, one of the mm-hmm. people on the Popper Format panel. And he says that one of the, the best compliments he ever got was someone said, Alex, you're a great writer who happens to play magic, not a great player who happens to write. Mm. Because the, the art of articulating yourself well in an article and truly teaching someone something like clearly and concisely is totally divorced from magic strategy. Yeah. And I think my content is appealing to a lot of people because I teach middle schoolers. Like mm-hmm. I I know how to distill information down to the most important stuff and I know how to quickly and clearly get stuff across without getting lost in big words and I think making complicated ideas simple so they're accessible to the general public is what makes my content great in many ways yeah and like teaching is hard like teaching someone how to do a thing is so much harder than you yourself knowing how to do it yeah um a lot of times when i do my first like one-on-one tutoring session with someone for magic related stuff in the first five to ten minutes, I will just completely blow their world because I show them a new way to think about something that they haven't like thought in that way before. And they're just like, whoa, like, how did you know to do that? And it's like, well, 
I've had 10 or so years of trial and error with eighth graders and high school students who like, if you don't explain something just perfectly clearly, and if you don't help them think about it in a way that's accessible to them, they're just not able to do it. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, one of the TikTok, uh, TikTok memes that's going around is like having kids try to write directions and then the adults will intentionally follow them wrong. And so the kid oh. will say something like, put the knife in the jar of peanut butter and the adult will grab the knife by the blade and put the handle into the peanut butter. And the kid realizes like, Oh, that wasn't actually clear to an outsider who doesn't know how to make a sandwich. Now was it? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what I do is showing people like how to follow those directions, like the actual steps they need instead of just the end product. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, I intentionally did not write sideboard guides for my website ever mm -hmm. because as a teacher, the last thing that I want to do is hand you the answer sheet and people yeah. will pay for the answer sheet. And it's like, no, well, I, I want to teach you the process. I want to show you why you need to do the things you do so you can do this for yourself in the future. Right. The it's, it's the give a man a fish versus teach a man to fish. Like, yep. That's I I've always found much more insight in like reading sideboard guides that like explain the whys of the in and outs rather than just give me the in and outs. Um, like the in and outs are useful and like not going to pretend that they're not. They definitely are a good you know quick shortcut. But I like having the process more because it just like helps me like build my own sideboard guides in the future or oh like, for I'm, sure. Like, tweaking the deck then like you know if you like change a couple sideboard cards well the old just in and outs don't work anymore so you gotta you know figure that out on the fly yeah that said a sideboard card that's just in and out numbers still is useful as long as you work backwards from there and go okay why is this person sideboarding in this way mm -hmm. you know why are these swords to plowshares coming out versus the control deck? Oh, it's because they don't have enough creatures. You know, you have right. to do that extra step. And if you don't do that extra step on your own, you're not truly benefiting from the sideboard guide. Mm -hmm. Or it's like, you have to know like when to play the sideboard guide. Like maybe it's, it's not as simple as like, yeah, you put Layla on the board in your deck versus rest in peace or versus reanimator and you mulligan for it. Uh, you know, sometimes it's like much more complicated. It's like, you know, a red elemental blast in Delver. And you're like, okay, what is the blue card I'm specifically trying to target? Yeah. So let's use that as an example. Okay. I put red elemental blast in versus Delver, which is counter target blue spell or destroy target blue permanent. Oh, they cast a ponder. I'm going to red elemental blast it. Well, is that what that's card for? Or was that card for the Merktide Regent that was going to kill you in two to three swings? You know, understanding why a card is in a matchup and what you are using it for matters so, so, so much. Yeah. Especially like in the Delver example, like let's say like there's some Red Elemental Blast decks that want to Red Elemental, like uh, want to blast the Merktide because that's the thing that's going to kill them. But like a Brainstorm Ponder Source of Flashers control deck is like, yeah, you can have an 8-8. I'll just, like, brazen borrow it or source splashes it. I need to counter the force of will that's going to counter my Uro. Bingo. Yeah. 
And like this, this sort of thing is why I was hesitant for so long to just write sideboard guides. Um, but now I find that I want to talk about theory more so than anything else. Mm-hmm. Because while I think a lot of people can talk to you about a matchup, there's fewer people who can put magic theory into an article in a way that is like entertaining and understandable and succinct yeah so that's that's where i i want to go moving forward Mm -hmm. i have a proposed but not yet approved article topic uh for another play edh article uh tentatively called should you lie in a game of commander that i think is gonna be a banger (laughs) oh that's oh that's that's definitely gonna spur some buzz in uh in the the community on that one yeah we'll 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 see if that one gets approved (laughs) yeah i've I've definitely seen that conversation just like flying around on on like cds where it's like should you lie in a cds tournament it's like like, maybe maybe not who knows (laughs) a lot of that depends uh who who you are so for so for example if i if i playing in a cedh tournament make some major lie and backstab someone mm-hmm. that is going to come back on me right <laughs> uh, twitter will cancel me but you know random joe schmo playing their series definitely has less stakes when they do that yeah um just kind of transitioning generally speaking i i as you know, I'm I'm starting to become a larger content creator. I am mm-hmm. trying to make sure that I am doing good by people and going out of my way to, you know, spread joy and make sure that I am making the community better with the, the content and the decisions that I make. Yeah. I think that's like that's probably like the best thing you can ask for in a content creator is just like just someone who just makes the community a better player. Like, not even a content creator, just a player. Just, if they're making the community a better place, like, that's that's great. When I... I don't want to say growing up, but, like, when I was a younger Magic player, when I looked at a lot of people writing content, I didn't necessarily like the human being that I saw. <laughs> like, I respected the strategic information that they had, and hence I read the articles. But, like, there are so many grinders back in the day that I would just kind of just describe as scumbags. And I don't want to be labeled with an umbrella like that. Like, Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that, like, I am doing some charity work, that I am going out of my way to learn the opinions of other groups of people, that I am kind of doing the things that I should do as a good human being in addition to just being a good magic player. I think that matters so, so, so much. Right. And then, like, it just will circle back. Like, the more like the more good you do in the community, the more people will recognize you for that good, and the more they'll come to you for you as a person rather than you as a player. Yeah, like, it's been said a million times in a million different contexts, right? But like magic is about the gathering at the end yeah. of the day. It is it is about the people playing the game. The game itself is one of the best games on the earth, but the people who come back to magic again and again and again aren't 
necessarily coming back for just the game, right? Mm -hmm. When I think about something like Magic Con Philly or Magic uh, Con Minneapolis, like when I think back to those events, I'm not thinking about the games that I played. I'm thinking about the crazy dinners that I had with people, the social gatherings that I had. Those are the things that I, I truly remember. And yeah. so many of those people I met because I was just like open and accepting of so many people from different walks of life. Right. Yeah. The real or the the real magic is the gathering all along has been something that has been said on this show countless times. <laughs> it is like we all we all feel it. It's really cheesy and corny, but like it's true. Like it's Yep. No. Um I I think I don't think she'll mind if I share this. Um uh Eliana was someone I did not know particularly well six months mm -hmm. ago. Um, I did a fundraiser in January for the Trevor Project, uh, where I was going to give away a scrubland as one of the stretch goals, and we crushed that fundraiser. I think we raised like $8,500 or something like that, and I had to give away a scrubland. Well, not had to, like, you know. You, you, it, yeah. it was something that I got to do. And... As it was my first time fundraising, I realized after the fact that if you run a fundraiser through YouTube, you can't actually see who donated. So oh. I, I reached out to my community. I'm like, what do I do about this? And my community said, give it away to a random person at the Magic Con who you think needs it. Mm -hmm. And prior to the Magic Con, I saw Eliana tweet out like, man, I wish I, I wish I could have a Scrubland for this deck. Like, I think that would just be so cool. And like, I mentally said to myself, like, okay. If I see her That's... at the con, I am going to give her a scrubland. And we, we didn't really know each other. Like, we were large-ish right. magic content creators who existed in overlapping spaces. We had one or two conversations. And now she is, like, a good personal friend of mine. Like, we have hung out plenty of, of times, had some awesome dinners together. Uh, I'm going to do some tutoring with her on Death and Taxes, and I hope she'll work with me on a couple of unannounced things being vague um that sure. i have going on in the future that's awesome like i i that's so cool they just like happen from like yeah all the just meeting people from magic's just like yeah this is just person i just like met at a game store and they're my best friend <laughs> or like <laughs> yeah it it turns out that when you get a bunch of content creators in the same place who are just like extremely passionate and love what they do like putting them in the same place results in a bunch of like very awesome people getting to meet each other and the magic cons that i've been to over the past year or so have just been amazing for my mental health and just like seeing all these like wonderful people who i otherwise might not have had a chance to meet just from going to traditional competitive tournaments yeah that's yeah i i always love going to the magic cons just like meeting you know like content creators that I look up to meeting my friends who like I just haven't seen in a while because we live across the country or like you know meeting people like I just like have never met for the first time like I just meet you know like people that like we didn't know each other beforehand and now hey look we both like are at this con we you know are in this dinner party together and like now we're friends I also love the diversity of going to a magic con 
because mm-hmm. uh, let me tell you, as a primarily legacy grinder, the the legacy demographic doesn't vary a lot. Uh, it is like primarily eighteen to forty year old white guys with a you know middle class status because legacy cards are expensive. Yep. And when I go to a Magic Con, like it is such a celebration of diversity. Like mm-hmm. I, I played games with literal, literal children at these Magic Con events who were just like there with their parents, there to have a good time. Like there was a mom, a dad, and a kid, and they were just kind of like sitting there, like doing the like little eyeball thing, like look, trying look to find for, a, fourth. a fourth. And I was just yeah. like, all right, I'm in. Like, <laughs> And, nice. and getting to meet so many different faces who were invested in the game in different ways was was so good for me. Like getting into com- commander content, like has given me a much better idea of what the average Magic player truly is like, uh, and I've I've appreciated that a lot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like when I started playing, it was just like I am the only kid in this store, I guess they're playing ones like 14, like 13, 14. Like, yeah, everyone else here is like 18 to eight, yeah, 18 plus. Uh, they're all cis white guys. Uh, like, dang, <laughs> I feel, <laughs> I feel very different in this space. And then, uh, and then like I got in like the online space and it's like, oh no, there's like tons of diverse people and tons of amazing people who are just like, you know, not cis white guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, but <laughs> my impression of the current like magic cons is that they are so much more welcoming and inclusive than the magic events of 10 years ago. A hundred percent. What? Like I, so I only ever went to one GP, uh, in 2017, uh, that's was, that was the only GP I ever went to because my parents were like, I, they were like, I wouldn't mind like, you know, you going to a GP, but like, it would have to be close by that we could drive to. And the only one was uh, GP Indianapolis in 2017. Uh, and also, uh, coincidentally, uh, happened the weekend after my 16th birthday. So they were like, this is also your birthday present. Um, and I went there and like, I had a blast. Like, it was very fun. But it was like, I am the only kid here. Like, like I'm just like, I see no kids at all. Uh, it's just like me and my brother. Um, I think like one of my school friends was also at that event. Um, but it was just like, wow, all these people are just like, this is like, just like my LGS, but bigger. And, you know, I just like definitely felt like no one like overtly said it was like, made me feel excluded, but just like, being in that space is like, yeah, I feel kind of excluded from this space. Yeah. Um, I think the community is getting better about kind of policing each other's action. Um, when I was in college, it was like not uncommon to see people with like, big titty anime sleeves hentai play mats that sort of thing and it's just like (laughs) folks you are you are going to exclude so many people by using things like that like you you are not community building here like 
how is a woman who shows up to this shop for the first time going to feel when like that is something you're using and no one else in the room is saying anything about it mm-hmm. so like they're by extension saying yeah this is okay this is normal like this is i i support this yeah and the the vibes that i i get at these larger more family friendly mostly commander events honestly now is not that like small game shop like the boys club feel anymore Mm -hmm. and i'm very happy about that honestly yeah and that's i i agree like it's it's so much better to just like see a like full diverse like 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 walk into a magic con hall and just see like a room full of just like people of totally different backgrounds and cultures and and everything as opposed to just like these are your sweaty nerds <laughs> who like look like sweaty nerds and yeah it's it's definitely a lot better like these days and like my LGS is good because the store owner uh, Mark he is like had like zero tolerance policy for anything like exclusionary um, like I remember this this is a, uh, a story when I was. I think it was like in 2016. So I was, I was 15 years old. And this was, this was like before I actually came out as trans. Um, I was, uh, in my LGS to play modern. And, uh, this, this like girl who I hadn't seen, like walks in the store and she, she's also playing modern. Um, uh, and she's, uh, she's like sitting next to me for, for round one. And she's on merfolk and her opponent, who is a guy I had never seen before in the store, which usually sure has like, regular people uh like show up um and he's this guy i never seen before and like she like is playing merfolk and and like i'm still shuffling and like bantering with my opponent because my opponent was like a friend of mine and i just hear the the guy say oh you're playing merfolk did your boyfriend build your deck for you uh... and i just like stop shuffling i just like slap my deck on the table i go you don't you don't say that to someone like like, what authority do you have to say that to someone? Like, look at you. You got an all foil out gem deck. Did your daddy build it for you? Yeah. I I don't know that there's any any one thing that has kind of helped, but I think the general patterns of being more open about talking about, like, social and political issues in just kind of our world, generally speaking, has trended more and more away from that sort of stuff yeah like i i never had access to a lot of the the conversations and information that like kids these days have access to growing up and i don't know i'm i'm pretty hopeful for the world uh on on a lot of days there's there's some days where i look at the news and i'm i'm real 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 sad but there's there's good strides being made forward in a lot of different directions. Yeah. And definitely magic is moving forward in a more positive direction, both like from the community and from wizards uh itself is definitely better than, than it used to be. Yeah, and then someday they'll like abolish the reserve list and all the commander players can have dual lands and we'll all rejoice yeah. and dance in a flower field together. It'll be great. Woo! I'm not I'm not holding my hopes up, folks. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's 
that's a bit uh too too uh out there dreamy world like unfortunately but we can still dance in the flower fields it'll be fun yeah that's yeah that's that's that part that's that's like uh, mandatory already like that that's not that's not uh contingent upon reserveless getting legal or getting printed that's just rejoice in a flower field because why wouldn't you want to rejoice in a flower field um but yeah um like thank you so much for for being on for for having this conversation um if there's anything you'd like to plug or you know talk about anything in the works feel free to do that sure um so for those of you that end up wanting to check out my content uh, i am thraben u t-h-r-a-b-e-n-u uh just about everywhere you know uh, my content is primarily on YouTube, and you can follow me on Twitter as well. Um, I've really been enjoying testing out a lot of the new Lord of the Rings cards on my YouTube channel. I have some really great uh, videos with Orcish Bowmasters in particular, if that's something that interests you. Um, I have an unannounced charity project um, later on in the year that I'm starting to do the works for, so uh, expect to hear about that a couple months down the line once i kind of have some details solidified but i'm looking to looking to crush what i did in january nice all right yeah thank you so much for for being on and have a great day you too this was a lovely conversation